0: Hey, I'm glad to be here with you this morning as we continue our church-wide campaign called The Story. If you haven't been here, maybe it's your first time here, we've been going through just the Bible. We've been looking at God's redemptive plan, and today actually are coming at the end of the Old Testament. So if you're just joining us and you want to continue or next week we're going to start the New Testament. You're actually coming, starting at a good time. But those of you who haven't been keeping up, or you haven't been reading, that's okay. You get to start fresh this week. So if you have your storybook, just turn to chapter 22, even if you only got to chapter two. All right, go ahead and skip to chapter 22, and then you'll be able to join us in learning about the New Testament. It's kind of like a fresh start. You get a do-over, right? This is a new thing where we're going to start talking about Jesus next week. Everybody follow me? So don't feel bad if you're behind. You can try to catch up or go ahead and just start on chapter 22. You see, the story this week, again, if you haven't been here, you're coming in at the tail end of the Old Testament. We've talked about all sorts of different things but but just a quick recap: where we're at is God has restored his people. They were sent into captivity. They were sent into exile because of their disobedience. So God removed them from the promised land. They were there for about 70 years. Then they got to go back home and rebuild their temple, which is their place of worship. They got to start working on their city to, to be Jerusalem, this place of God once again. And what they're doing is the prophets, remember, encourage them, says, Hey, we're gonna build this temple. They got a little distracted and things like that, but prophets came and said, Hey, God's gonna do something here. And so this is decade after what we're gonna talk about. The temple's been built. They know the promises that God made. They heard what their leaders told them was gonna happen, but it doesn't seem like it's coming true. They're waiting for the glory of the Lord to fill the temple, but it, it hasn't happened yet. They want to be a strong nation once again, but they're not really a nation. They're more like a providence of Persia. They don't see miracles. Right? Like they they have the scriptures, they have the law. they, They read about all these miracles that's happened in the past, but they don't seem to be happening now. The prophet said that God was gonna do something amazing, but it doesn't seem like it's actually happened. So they grow weary, they grow discouraged. They become apathetic towards the things of God. They just stop concerning themselves with the things that God had asked them to do. They aren't committing full-blown idolatry like their ancestors of the past did. Now they're just kind of going, "Well, well, I know he said, but just kind of doing their own thing." You see, they're living apathetic towards God, both spiritually in their private life, and corporate worship. And you see, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves in the same situation. You see, we too are waiting for God. We're waiting for the return of Jesus. We too want God to move in our lives in a mighty way, but when you read the New Testament, you see the miracles, we're like, yeah, but it, it doesn't seem to happen like that anymore. We too want God to move in our churches and our nations. When we turn to the New Testament, we see thousands upon thousands of people coming to the Lord and the things that were happening and we're going, hey, it just seems a little different. Is, is God gonna move or what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we're waiting? And see, just like them, we too can find ourselves in spiritual apathy. But what we'll find and what we'll see is during the process, God is still God. God was about to move in a way they never expected. They thought he was gonna fill the temple, but he was going to physically come to the temple. You see, the next move, nobody saw coming. You see, the problem we find isn't what God was doing. It wasn't on God's plans. It wasn't on God's time. The problem was the individual's heart. You see, they should have been preparing for the Messiah, Getting ready. But instead, they're living in spiritual apathy, both corporately and privately. And through this prophet Malachi, God confronts them and excuse me, confronts them in a question and answer format. And just so we're all on the same page, apathy means a lack of interest, a lack of concern, or a lack of enthusiasm. You see, they were making compromises. They were thinking these things aren't that big of a deal that God says, oh, but it is a very big deal. So if you have your your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to the book of Malachi. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay, it'll be behind us on the screen. And if you're like, hey, I don't know where Malachi is, go to Matthew and then go left. Okay, that's the best way to find that. Go to Matthew, which is the New Testament, then go to your left. We're just gonna look through some of these things and we'll let God go ahead and do the talking. Just a warning may get a little rough today but that's okay malachi 1 1 1 1 through 5 says a prophecy the word of the lord to israel through malachi i have loved you says the lord but you ask how have you loved us let's stop here real quick we got to remember new testament excuse me love isn't just the new testament thing love is a god thing Throughout scripture, God has shown his love through the very beginning of creation and through his redemptive purposes throughout history of Israel, we see God's love. And so right at the beginning, because I'm telling you, it's going to get pretty rough. God says, I've loved you. Never forget, God loves you. That's one of the things that's happening here is they've forgotten God's love. They're doubting God's love, but he points them back to what he's done for them. He tells them, he says, hey, I've loved you. You've seen my love. He says, you are still a people. All the other nations that you read about from a couple thousand years ago, he says, they're not here anymore, but you're still here. He's saying, I've shown my great love for you. For us today, when we think about or we doubt God's love, we turn to verses like Romans 5, 8 that says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ Died for us. See, if we ever doubt love, God's love, they, they were to look back at the history of their nation. If you were to ever doubt God's love, we look at the cross. We remember what the cross represents. We remember that God has showed us. He made the first move. He says, you wanna know how much you can trust me? Look at the extent I'm willing to go for you. So if you ever doubt it, remember the cross. So God has demonstrated his love for the entire World, we see his patience, we see his redemptive nature, his intimate relationship. And so the theme throughout this book is: he says, Hey, I have loved you. And so, in the background, the thing that you should be hearing throughout each conversation he has with them is, I love you, but do you love me? Our first response, just like there's a be, of course, we love you. I mean, I wouldn't be here. Do you know how early it is, God? Of course, I say it all of the time. But do you love God? I mean, come on. Do you love him? And they would have said, of course. He says, well, let's look. Verse six, he says, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty. It is your priest who show contempt for my name, but you ask how have we shown contempt for your name. Let's stop real quick right here. Remember back then the priests were responsible for offering the offerings. They were the ones who would offer the sacrifices for the people. And so we're saying, you have disrespected me. You're not honoring me. And they say, well, how have we showed contempt? How have we showed disregard for who you are? He says, well, your priests have by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? He said, By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? You see, they were supposed to offer their best of the best to God, the unblemished animals, but instead of giving him their best, they're giving them their worst. They're giving them animals they had no use for. They're giving them animals they would disregard anyways. Instead of giving God their best in worship, they're giving him, well, their leftovers. God says, well, would you offer that to the governor? You wouldn't give that to an official. The idea is if the governor of South Carolina would come to your house, would you prepare a three-day-old spaghetti for him? Would you be like, hey, there's a tub in the fridge, go for it, I'm about to throw it out anyways, have all you want. You'd be like, well, no, I'm not even catering. He says, if you wouldn't give that to officials, why are you giving that to me if I am? God, you respect and honor them more than me? See, here's how it relates to us. There's different type of offerings. What God is specifically referring to here is their worship offering. The things that would be a part of how they worship, the sacrifices, part of what they do corporately as a people, they have spiritual apathy in their worship. His point is that what they think is worship what they are offering isn't even close. See, O'Brien, that's not what he says. Oh yeah, look at this, verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I will not accept no offerings from your hand. He says, I would rather you shut the doors than continue doing what you're doing. Those fires you're lighting, those offerings, they're pointless, they're useless. You might as well just close the doors. Translation, the worship you're doing is worth. The worship you're doing is worthless. It's missed it. They're going through the motions. I mean, they're showing up, they're giving, but it's not what it really is. Well, today, we of course don't have priests, We don't offer sacrifices. Jesus filled the role of our ultimate priest. We don't need anybody to come between us and God. We can now go to him because of Jesus Christ. We don't offer sacrifices because Jesus Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. He gave his life up. So we don't do those things anymore. And here's why this matters. It's not a priest's responsibility to worship anymore. It's each and every one of our responsibilities to worship. And he's not impressed with our apathy. Which begs the question, are we giving God our leftovers when we gather together to worship? Or are we giving him our best? Or are we going through the motions are we so busy during the week that when we gather, we really have no enthusiasm, no interest? We really have nothing to give him. Are we so busy with that college football game or that high school football game that by the time we get to Sunday, we're like, man, I'm just so wore out. God, here's just, here's what's left. I don't have much to give you because i am burnt out. Are we so busy during the week with our work and our hobbies that when we come together to worship our enthusiasts, our interest, our concern, our passions, we're like, hey, I'm drained, God. Here's, here's just, here's what I got. Are we so busy that we forget that when we come, we are worshiping the creator God who spoke everything into existence, or are we coming to actually worship something else? He says, your pastor, I love you. And you need to know that worship comes from the heart. And when we gather together, we shouldn't be concerning ourselves with something or something else. We should be focusing on singing praises and honor and respect to the creator of the universe. I just want to remind you that when we gather together, we're not worshiping a pastor, we're not worshiping staff, we're not worshiping a pulpit. We're not worshiping a table, a guitar, an organ, a suit, a jeans, hymns, or praise songs. We're not coming together to focus on those things. We are coming together to focus on our God. But we miss it. We concern ourselves with other things other than God. You see, we come together to be strengthened as a community of God's people, to be built up and then go out and glorify him in all that we do. When we come together, we praise and worship and respect and honor who deserves it all. That's God. And as a pastor and probably you too, I cringe when I think God could say, you know what, just shut the doors. Just close them because what's going on isn't worship. If it's already gotten heavy to you, it's gonna get worse. I'm just letting you know, like, up front. Are we giving God our best? Are we giving him the full attention and the praise and the honor and respect that he is due as God? He says, do you, do you love me? I mean, Really? So God turns the corner. He's not done yet. He talks to them as a group, their corporate worship, but then he starts pressing in their individual lives, their individual thought process. Malachi 2.10, he says, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why did we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? He's about to speak on marriage and notices he ties it back to the creation story. Hey, don't we have one God? Don't we have one person who made us? And he confronts them on two issues. Marrying people of different faiths. Again, remember, we saw that throughout the Old Testament. It never works out. And he confronts them on their unfaithfulness to their spouse. He says, Judah has been unfaithful. Detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. Again, throughout the Old Testament, there's always been a thing there. Some people misinterpret this and think it means ethnic groups and all sorts of stuff. God's only concern isn't the color of your skin or anything like that. God's concern is your faith. He doesn't want people with different faiths intermarrying. He's saying, hey, if they believe something different, you don't want to marry them, you don't want to bring together, we should be equally yoked in that. And this has been an issue if you've been with us for a long time in the nation. He says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. The picture here, someone's crying out to God, change my circumstances. God, here's my offering. God, I need you to move. They're crying, they're wailing. God, we need you to act. And he said, look, I see you down there weeping and wailing. I see what you're doing, but you know I'm not changing it. I'm not accepting what you're going through. And they say, well, why? It is because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. He says God, show his favor. And he says, no, I see what you're doing to your spouse. I see how you're treating your partner. You're disregarding the marriage covenant. Verse 15, he says, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. And he says a couple more things. But what I need you to see is God takes marriage very serious. Malachi takes the idea of marriage back to Genesis where God created us, both male and female. And he brought together man and woman together and told them to multiply and fill The earth. You see, marriage is God's idea. Marriage was something He instituted right at the beginning of creation. It's not something we just came up with, it's not something we just decided to do. This was God's design, it was His idea. And so, since God created it, God gets to define it. And they're apathetic towards God's creative order, His creative control. You see, they're defining what marriage is, who I can marry. How could they get away with getting out of their marriage? Isn't that the same stuff we talk about today? Hey, when how, how can I divorce? When am I allowed? Like when, when when is that okay? And then well, who and what faith and what is that? How, we're still talking about it and here's we're so concerned with who people can marry and how people can get out of marriages. We don't even pay attention to what a good biblical marriage looks like. You see. A biblical marriage or a Christian marriage is when a man and woman come together under the lordship of Jesus Christ and commit themselves to each other. They first submit to Jesus and his teachings, meaning they give all authority to him. They live under him and then they submit to each other, meaning they look out for the other person's interests. Say, hey, how can I support you? And the other person says, hey, how can I support you? And we're gonna look out for each other and we're gonna love each other because we're both serving Jesus Christ. And then they grow through life together. If they're able, they have children and raise godly offspring. You see, marriage isn't just some thing. Marriage is God's thing, his idea from the very beginning. See, right from the beginning of Genesis, we see that God said, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. So we created something different. But when they come together, they can do something that they couldn't do on their own. You see, in Genesis 1, we see God making things that are different, but they complement each other. Think about it. He creates dark and night. He creates the sun and the moon. And when you bring those things together, you have days, you have weeks, you have months, you have our calendar. He creates land and he creates water. Very different, but bring them together. What do you have? Our planet. He creates animals in the land, the sea, and the sky, and you bring those together, you have this amazing, complicated ecosystem. He creates things that are different, but they complement each other. We see the heavens and the earth, and one day they're gonna be brought together. Revelation tells about that. To make one, to make something beautiful. In that same way, we see him create male, and we see him create female. And when they come together, they make something beautiful. Amazing, something different that two like parts couldn't make. See, a biblical marriage is that God has designed something special, something amazing. So, the question in the background, God asks Do you love me? Say, Yeah. So, your marriage should reflect your love for me. Be faithful to your spouse. Take your marriage serious. Marriage is constantly used in the New Testament as a metaphor with God's relationship with us. We're like, that's kind of not a big deal. And God's like, no, it is a big deal and it's always a big deal. It's something I've designed for you. Your love for God is reflected in your marriage. And if you're sitting here and you're like, hey, I've missed that. It's okay, God redeems and forgives. This is just him talking to people saying, hey, marriage is a big deal, is pay attention to what he teaches. And then he goes to another area, talks about giving. I told you this was gonna be rough, right? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is Malachi. He's like, hey, this is where you are showing spiritual apathy. This is where you're not concerned with me. He says this, Malachi 3:6. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and not have kept them. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. He says, I do not change. It's the promises I made. The reason why you're still here is because I am God and I always will be God. And I have not changed. I have not changed my love for you. He says, so what you're dealing with is because you've left me. What you're feeling is because you've left me. He says, so come back. And I will come back to you. He says, but you ask, how are we to return? He says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. See, they're all concerned with the giving back to God. They quit giving. They were withholding their finances from him. You see, tithing is where we set apart 10% and give it back to him. The idea is it's all his anyways. And so we set aside the first 10% to make sure we return it to him for his work in this world. You see, back then, the tithe would take care of the tribe of Levi and the temple and all the workers and all the things that would happen. Remember, remember, this is important. When Israel came to the promised land, all the tribes were given a plot of land but the Levites. So all of them could work the land except the Levites. Levites, they had to work for the temple, they had to carry out the duties of the Lord. And so the idea is, hey, they're not gonna be able to work, they don't have land. All of us coming together can support the work of the Lord together. So yes, they're the ones doing the work, but we are supporting them in the work. So here's the idea. We all have buy-in. We're all participating. We all are doing this together. And it's not so different than today Today, your tithes and offerings go to the work of the church. They support the pastors and the staff and our families. It supports all the different activities and all the different places we get to give. It's the same thing. We're all coming together and sharing our resources to carry out the work of the Lord. And so they're not interested in taking part of what God is doing financially. And when they stop giving to him, God says, "You're, you're robbing me. And I remember when I first heard that, it shook me like, because when I first heard it, I wasn't giving at all. I was like, Am I, I'm robbing God? That's not a position I want to be in. They stopped supporting. And here's, here's the thing about tithing. Tithing is the starting point. Tithing is where we give back to him 10% of our finances. But here's the thing. It was the bare minimum. Tithing was the minimum they were required to give. Tithing wasn't being generous Tithing was a requirement. That's where the offerings come into play. Offering is where you go above and beyond. So tithing is a great place to start, but it's not necessarily the place you want to finish. And just because your tithe is a big number doesn't mean it's any different than anybody else. It's just you're blessed with more finances, and that's great. See, look at this. Luke 21, verse 1 says, As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He saw a poor widow put on two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, the poor widow has put more than all the others. All these people give their gifts out of wealth, but she out of her poverty put all she had to live on. See, no matter the size of your gift, God sees it. And it's about the heart. And then when it comes to giving, pay attention. I know some of us cringe. We're like, ah, here we go. I don't want to talk about this. But listen, listen, listen. This is so important. Why? Why would you not wanna talk about this? Here's what God says. Check this out. He says, test him in tithing. He says, test me. Go for it. I dare you. Do it. He says, and he, will, he, says he will throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room for it. Why would you not wanna know that? He says, I will take care of you. Watch what happens test. He says, you don't believe me? Try it out. Come on. This is the Lord saying, I mean, can you, the Lord's like, go ahead, watch. Do it. I dare you. Watch what I do. I'll bless you so much. You won't be able to know what to do with it. So if you don't give, I want to encourage you or challenge you to test them. Try it. Just start giving back. See what happens. And maybe you can't start with 10%. Hey, start with one or three or five and just work yourself up to it. Maybe you give irregularly. I would challenge you to be consistent, to be intentional. Maybe you tithe, and maybe you've always tied. I would challenge you to start increasing, to say, "Hey, well, what about 11 this year? What about 12 this year? Wouldn't it be great if we all gave 50 percent back to the Lord? All of us, me too, gave back to I mean, that's the position. Tithe is the minimum. So why not increase? And those of you who give above and beyond because we know you're out there, you have just learned the verse we read earlier. You know it to be true where Jesus has given, it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, you can't outgive God. I know that's a cliche, but it's very true. He says, test me. He says, do you love me? So Brian, that's not fair. No, Jesus says something. He attaches our heart to our finances and our finances to our heart. He says in Matthew 6, 21, for your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This isn't a guilt trip. This is a test Him on this trip. Maybe you didn't know. According to Jesus, our finances follow our heart. And we don't have time to look at everything. He also talks about their social injustices. He also talks about their attitudes towards serving God. He calls them arrogant because they're like, yeah, it's not really worth serving. He's like, y'all have arrogant attitudes. Malachi is rough. But it's only rough if you're living in spiritual apathy. If you're faithful to your spouse and you know it's an important thing, you're like, yeah, I got it. If you're giving already, you're like, yeah, I got it. If you're bringing God, you're all in worship. You're like, yeah, I got it. And so if there's an area of your life, we believe the Holy Spirit convicts. We believe that's God's job, not my job. But if there's an area in your life, you're like, yeah, I feel that. I would challenge you to respond to God and respond to his promptings. Your spiritual apathy is where we look like we're doing the right things, where we're going through the motions, where we're there, but we're not really there. We're not really giving it our best. We're not giving it our all. We're kind of just, yeah, but. So God confronts their corporate worship, their private lives, but the entire conversation starts with this. I love you, and I've always loved you. You see, God is spurring them. He's spurring us in these issues. He's saying, because I want you to enjoy what I've given you. He says, you were designed to worship. If you're not worshiping, something's missing in your life. He says, you were designed to be generous, not greedy. If you're holding on to your stuff, I don't want you to live a greedy life. Give so you can see what that freedom feels like. If you're not having a faithful, good marriage, he's like, no, I created this for you to enjoy it. You're taking it out of context. Don't mess it up. His whole message is I've created you and designed you and I've put these things in place. I want you to live a life that honors and glorifies me and here's some ways that you're taking it out of context, that you're, that you're not doing it right. God's saying I know where these paths lead. I've seen it. You've read about it. Just turn to me and I'll turn back to you. And look at verse 16, 316. This is so cool. It says, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. So here's what's going on. Evidently, a group of people took the message of Malachi serious. We don't know what they said, but they got together and evidently they were encouraging, probably repenting like, hey, he's right. Let's turn from this. And so after the message, God is pictured leaning in, listening, and the people are like, Yeah, you know what? We're going to do this. Hey, we're going to turn from our ways. Hey, we're going to be on board with what God's doing. God said, Hey, get out the scroll. Billy, Bob, Johnny, Debbie. Yeah, write their names down. They've repented. God's like, God, So I can remember later and I reward them later. Go ahead. I'm going to write their names down. God's paying attention, God's listening. Remember that when you go in the parking lot to have a conversation, okay? That was supposed to be a joke. That was a bad joke. I apologize. (laughs) I'm a pastor. I'm allowed to do bad jokes. But the picture is God waiting, listening, going, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what are you going to do now? I, I want to save you. I want to redeem you. I want to bless you. I want to use you. But come on. He says, come back. I want you to experience me. What are you doing here? So no matter where you are today, the message is God saying, come on. Come back. Get right. I got you. I'm here. I forgive. Let's move on. So no matter where you are, the message of God is spurring something in your heart is, come on. Come back to me. If you're a Christian just going through the bare minimum, he says, renew your covenant. Renew what I've done. Remember what I've done. Look at the cross. Don't forget. See, you don't have to live like that. Jesus says, As i come to set you free. You can live different. You can live a supernatural life through him. If you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus Christ. The message is the same. He says, come on. Do you see what I've done for you? I don't want you living like that. He says, my son, he's died for you. To redeem you, to rescue you, so you can be with me for eternity. You see, we get this picture of God that He's out to get us, but God is for us. God wants us to enjoy and celebrate life. He says you can do that, through my son. So here in a moment, I'm going to pray. And we're gonna have a time of reflection, a time of commitment. And I just ask you that while they sing, while you sing, whatever the Lord's prompting you, I just ask you to do it before you leave. I'll be up here if you need to talk or you need to pray. Maybe you wanna know more about Jesus. Listen, I'll spend as much time as you possibly need after the service telling you all about him. Or maybe you're ready. You're like, hey, I wanna give him my life now. Hey, you can do that too. Or maybe for you, there's an area of your life, maybe an area we didn't even mention that you're like, yeah, I feel God pulling on my heart. His message for you this morning is, Come on. Turn from that. Come live and enjoy life with me. And what they're getting ready for, and what we're going to see next week, because God was about to move in a mighty way, He was about to come to them in flesh. But the vast majority missed them because of their hearts. That is sad, but we'll get to that next week. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Father, we don't want to miss out on what you're doing in this world. We don't want to miss out on the blessings that you have for us corporately as we worship. We don't want to miss out on the blessings you have for our marriages, for our finances. Those are the things we worry and think about that consume most of our time, Father, and you know that. Father, we don't want to miss out on living a life that honors you and glorifies you. So Father, if any of us are living in in, in apathy, maybe in our worship, maybe in our finances, maybe in our marital life, if we're living with a lack of concern, lack of interest, lack of enthusiasm, Lord, I pray that your spirit renews us. I pray that we just repent and turn to you. We confess our sins and we know you are faithful and just to forgive us. Father, if there's anyone here who hasn't given their life to Jesus, I pray that they take this opportunity to do that. They confess Him as Lord and believe in their heart that you raised them from the dead. The cross was sufficient, that the blood of Jesus forgives all of their sins. Father, those know if they need to make that decision. I pray for boldness for them. God, we don't wanna miss out on what you're doing in this world. Hear our hearts, hear our prayers. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Will you stand?